0: This is the com podcast. I'm Larry Lannon. Honored to have two gentlemen, the uh, outstanding gentlemen in our community, Mayor Scott Fadness and our police chief, Ed Gephardt. Mayor Fadness, chief, welcome. Great to have both of you the first time together, by the way. Really? Yeah, I have not had the two of you on together. I've had each of you on individually, and the right. chief has been on before, so it's just good to have you all in yeah, one place, so we can all talk about what's going on, and uh Mayor, of course, we must mention the fact that the temperature
1: is about 13 degrees outside, and you did not wear a winter coat today. not have a coat, but you do need to mention I do have a sport coat on.
0: A sport coat is on. Yeah. You know, the people who see the picture on SoundCloud <laughs> glad can see that, but... Uh Yes, and sometimes you don't wear the sport coat either, by yeah, the way. it just depends. If it's above 20,
1: I don't see the need. And
0: this goes back to growing up on a North Dakota farm. Yeah, the, I you mean, know. you grow up hardy
1: in North Dakota.
0: Let me start off with you, Mayor, because, uh, you know, going back in time when I first started covering you, when you were the Fisher's town manager, you have always, as far back as I could remember, had an emphasis on public safety and in, in, in the way you approach government. Now, with all the priorities you're constantly juggling as mayor, Talk about the importance you place on the work uh, of the police department, for example.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, so if we think about what is fundamental to why people choose to live in Fishers and why people would stay in Fishers, I think sometimes we probably gloss over safety because we take it for granted, but it is, it's is—it's paramount. It's fundamental to why anyone would want to choose to live here. Now, I think what we, what we pride ourselves on here, and, and I think Ed and I's relationship has shown this over the years. It's one thing everyone's always going to say they care about public safety. I mean, that's part and parcel. I, I would doubt there'd be a mayor out there that would sit in here and say, well, geez, literally, I just don't care about public safety. But that being said, you know, to be great at public safety, which I think both our police and fire department are, that's an intentional act. Like to continue to push the envelope to make sure that we're doing what we need to to adapt and evolve. That's, that's a day in, day out conversation that we've been working on for years. And I think it's allowed us to position ourselves well because this community moves so fast that if you think about it, our law enforcement department, our fire department, they both have to adapt at the speed that this community's changing. And that, that's no small task for people like the chief and, and all the folks on his team.
0: And we're going to get into some of that. But, Chief, I want to start off well, talking to you about something that's one of the, one of the biggest changes in law enforcement here and, and around the nation. That's the use of body cams. Uh, how have your officers adjusted to using these body cameras? I
2: don't think for them it was an adjustment, per se. We already had uh, in-car videos rolling, so the officers were used to being... Videoed on scenes and on calls for service. I think what changed for Fishers at the time, and people talk about uh, reaction versus action, and, and we were moving towards body cameras in 2018, 2019. It's one of the first initiatives I took on after becoming chief. Um, so it was in place, and it was moving. Uh, you know, pre, pre, and post pandemic, Floyd era. So we were getting our feet wet long before the controversies of body cameras started coming out or happening. And um, I said it uh, to you then, and I'll say it to anybody now, I felt confident with our team because I knew our officers are the professionals that we expect them to be. And I knew that body cameras would just tell us that. It would tell us what they're doing well. And sure, it catches us on an off day or a, or something. We handle that internally, and we audit those. But uh, for a, a vast majority of our time, our officers are out there being the professionals that they're supposed to be, and the body cameras show that.
0: So how many requests does your department get to receive videos from a body camera? A lot. Really? And where are they coming from?
2: All over. I mean, it, it depends uh, if you have an incident that draws attention Uh, People want wrecks that they were involved in because they're, you know, litigating civilly in court. Um, We may have uh, fatality accidents that bring, you know, certain litigation in. You may have uh, complaints that come on station and people want to review the camera and have the camera. Um, You may just have people come in and want something because they were a part of a scene or a part of something and they want to review it uh, in its entirety. So they come in from different angles and different reasons.
1: I think, Larry, one of the misperceptions about this and Chief, correct me if I'm wrong here, the lion's share of requests to see these videos are not what people think about. When we talk about this and when, when you're asking about it, you're asking about it in the light of transparency and people upset with the police department over something. That's a small sliver of the majority of the requests we get are tied up in private litigation, like an insurance company trying to understand who was at fault in a car accident. They may need that video or or if someone's filing suit against someone for wrongdoing or whatever. It's a very small amount that come in that say, I think your police officer did something wrong and therefore I need to see that video. And I will tell you, when you ask the learning curve, I think our officers were comfortable with it because they, they know who they are and they know the professionals they are. The part that we had to learn, the chief and I and, and everyone from an administrative policy is, okay something happens. You now have video record of it. When do you release it? How do you release it? What's the appropriate manner in which to release these things? And so you started learning from other agencies a whole body of work on how best to deploy that. You started seeing it in uh, Las Vegas and California, and then ultimately in Indianapolis. You'll see this critical incident videos, right, where they lay out the context for what's going on. They get those videos out sooner rather than later. That's all learning as we go because it's one thing to have the video. It's quite another thing to know what do you do with it in the, in the heat of the moment. So and, you, and you hired someone to,
0: to do the technical part. I remember that being part of the budget process. Is that right? You have somebody on your staff
2: that kind of goes through the videos, does the technical part, finds it, and it takes does the multiple, editing. It's multiple people, it's, uh-huh. a, it's, a, it's a lift. So there's multiple people that are trained up to handle that task. But yes.
0: So, so Mayor, I do remember that uh, you must settle all these internally because I remember when this all rolled out, anybody who had a a dispute about whether something should be released would go to the Board of Public Works
1: and Safety, and I go to most of those meetings. I haven't seen one of those yet. We haven't really had an occasion yet where we've had to deny someone the ability to have their video for, for the reasons stated in that policy. Um, And so we've always erred on the side of transparency, to be honest with you. We have to redact certain things. You wouldn't want someone's child being on that video before it gets released, things like that. Um, But time and time again, for the most part, these guys are releasing an awful lot of video. And it's a a heavy lift. I mean, it's a lot of work to make sure that we can do that appropriately um, moving forward in an expedient manner. We move on to something else. i stay with you, Mayor, for this one, because mental
0: health has been a priority of your administration since you became mayor. You've emphasized mental health not just uh, amongst the citizenry, but also for your employees and particularly public safety officers. Uh, explain what's happening there.
1: Well, I, I can't take credit for a lot of the work there. That's uh, Chief Gephardt, Chief Arusa, both care about this and Frankly, for a long time in law enforcement and in fire, um, it culturally, it just wasn't popular for a chief to say, I'm gonna care about your mental well-being. If you could come in and do the job, nobody really cared if you went home and drank a fifth of scotch every night or whether you got divorced five times or whether you ended up committing suicide. It was as long as you were a good officer, you were a good officer. Um, I think some of the things that uh, I know Ed and I have both witnessed and, and dealt with and as, along with Chief Arusa, have driven these guys to try to create systems that will help our officers see and do difficult things, but still you know, accomplish what needs to be done. And then give them the best chance possible at a what I would call a well-rounded life. You know, Chief, um, police officers, as far back as I can remember,
0: and I've been a police reporter and several times during my journalism career years ago, police officers always had a culture of being tough. You know, being able to handle anything. I remember one police officer said, you have to walk into whatever place you're in where there's a disturbance, and you've got to act like you can whip anybody in the room. I mean, you just got to be the tough guy or, or woman, depending on what you're dealing with. Uh, I guess, the, the, how the, the officers responded to this when you said, look, you guys and women, you, you're going to have issues that are mental health issues. You need to come forward if you need help. What kind of response did you get?
2: Well, it was built up over time. So it doesn't happen overnight. Um, trust is acquired through relationships and and just trying to get back in there to, so they understand that you do have their best interest at hand. And, uh, to be able to go out in the environment that we have to be effective at their jobs, they have to know that they're going to be supported. Um, we started on the physical side. We got a lot of trust through our physical work with our city, through our HR and so forth to where officers were getting the help that they needed. And that's kind of where you start to earn the trust is how you handle those situations. When we started to move into the mental health side, um, I felt the resistance, uh, like you're speaking of, but we just stayed, uh, kind of true to the mission of getting them help. And I don't, uh, whether it's a mental injury or a knee injury, it's an injury to me and we're going to treat it. And that's the stance we took. And, uh, uh, over time, when you have officers coming forward, you demonstrate that you do care. And that sets a tone better than you can do anything because the officers talking among the officers are the ones that will earn you the respect if someone's willing to come into your office and say, I'm not mentally in the game for this job today. And we've had that. And that occurs. It's happened a few times in, uh, Um, We've had instances in Fishers, an affluent city that, you know, compensates and takes care of their officers. I can't imagine uh, the weight of other agencies that don't have good systems in place to take care of their people when they come off of, you know, a scene to talk through what they've just seen or what they've just witnessed. And then also, too, we have good outreach programs for our spouses. Spouses have a way of helping officers to get healthy as well. And I think as long as we keep treating them the way they should be treated, which is it's an injury, whether it's physical or whether it's mental, and we take care of them and we do right by them, and I do that with the support of the city, I think they see time and time again that uh, they're going to get the help they need. (laughs) They're in fear of losing this occupation in a matter of hours because of I'm not right, and that is a a real fear. I've gone through it myself in my career to where you don't want it taken away because it's all you want to do. And so we have to show them that that is not the first instinct that this city has, and, and they know that. So it makes it easier to get them help. And we've talked to them time and time again about just intersecting trauma. If you can start talking about it, you can get them to therapists, you can get them into help. We have a good chance and a high percentage of saving that officer's career. I uh, knew
0: got to know several police officers during my work over the years, and what I found is that most of them would tell me, you know, you're dealing with every shift. You know, you're dealing with the worst parts of life. Every day, your entire shift, everything bad that happens in town, you're going to be called to it. Uh, so he always had a, – a most, so most of them had ways of dealing with it. Like one of them had hobbies. He had 100 hobbies. When he left to shift, he left that aside and always put his mind on something else. I'll tell you something else real quickly that I'll say. There are a lot of professions where people don't think about stress and and all the mental health. I saw a documentary about two or three years ago about the news reporters that covered Hurricane Katrina. You know, their own communities were being destroyed and that they were covering it and that it took several months for them to realize that they were damaged. And and that's not even talking about the first responders, the police, the other people, the National
2: Guard, all those people that came in to help. Well, post-traumatic stress comes on over time. But the other thing to look at, and you're right, we lay out a, a good internal policy of, look, whether it's physical, whether it's mental, or whether it's spiritual, we have all those components in our building supported by the staff and by the city. So if you have to work out and 33% settle it in the gym, 33% will settle it spiritually upstairs with one of our five chaplains that we have on staff all the time. And the other 33 call therapist. It used to be you'd go on a shift and you'd go out with the shift at the end of the night and you'd use alcohol to consume uh, your thoughts and your mind. And that's just not the way anymore, and we don't do it that way. And we've learned that in our own profession over time.
1: Yes, I've sadly seen that and understand what you're talking about. It's really, Larry, it's so fascinating, though, having been involved in these conversations a lot. We've got guys on our department that have been involved in – multiple shootings now, uh, you know, I've been around very violent acts in the worst of the worst situations and it doesn't, they don't, they don't seem to be dramatically affected at least at the moment. And then you have other guys, guys and gals who a particular incident triggers them in a different It You can't look at a lineup of people and know who and when and how something's going to really get their number. It, and when it does you just got to be there to try to have the systems in place to intersect it but any kind of predictive ability i haven't seen it yet cuz i don't get why one happens and the other doesn't but it it's pretty wild to be a part of and see it well, the way of no pr-
2: the way of the job used to be tough it out get back in there that's the way of the job those are the people that trained me mm-hmm. Now, however, we we rely upon professionals to help us make those determinations on who's injured upstairs and who's injured physically. We don't do that as a staff. We have people that come in and help us with those decisions, which which leads us to a good city policy. Because what's critical to me, like the mayor said, doesn't mean it's what's critical to him. And I've seen that time and time and time again.
0: Let me move on to something else, because, Mayor, technology is changing the way police departments do their work. How has the city supported technology in law enforcement here in Fishers?
1: Well, in a variety of ways, and, and uh, Chief and his team have really kind of led the way on this. It's going to be – I'm excited to see what the next 12 to 24 months hold for our uh, department um, because I think we're at the forefront of a lot of technologies, whether you're talking about uh, our work with Flock and our intelligence unit and how they're really deploying that, that camera technology – whether you're talking about rapid DNA, whether you're talking about a variety of different tools that are putting into the um, lab that I don't even understand. Um, But all of those technologies to bear, I think what you're going to find is that the chief and his team, when bad things do happen in fishers, I think you're going to see a lot of resources brought to bear to identify the people perpetrating those crimes in a much more expedient fashion than you would perhaps in some other agencies that are still dependent upon Kind of instinct and just good detective work which you can't replace don't get me wrong but you can supplement it with a whole lot of technology that can put that detective in the right place at the right time to try to make an arrest
0: yeah and you know i've gotten to know a lot of detectives over the years not so much here in fisher's but doing police reporting elsewhere and i can't even imagine what kind of technology they have today compared to those days uh, how do your and, and detective work is just one part of it talk about how your officers in various ways are
2: using technology today that you wouldn't even think about a couple of years ago. Well, you, you know, the one is the one look is what we do with our our gun program. You know, one of our joint efforts and strategic goals is always to go after illegal firearms in our city because we don't want to be consumed with shootings um, like other areas around us. So. Um, Those weapons, when they come off the street, you know, we niben trace those for their histories to find out what crimes they've been used in. We also DNA those, and then we also fingerprint those. And so that DNA connects that illegal gun to a person that shouldn't have it or is using it the, the wrong way. We can now pull that, and we can use that to solve other crimes. I wanna solve crimes on the way up to the shooting. And you have that in a lot of carjacking, stolen vehicles, armed robbery you got to solve those crimes so i want solves on those crimes i want messages out to the to the surrounding communities and ours you don't come here because we'll take dna we'll do things with fingerprints that no one does we'll take the time to make sure we have the resources in place like flock to find you and and we've demonstrated that on crimes in fisher's time and time again to know that we have the right technologies growing alongside the agency. And it helps. Um, And the mayor spoke of the intel unit that we have. We have an intelligence unit. We have four civilian analysts that analyze all that data on that crime. Used to be officers would come into a squad room, and we're not built for it, and we'd get on the computer and try to connect people with places and different things, and then you'd spend hours doing that, and then you'd head out to the house. We have people upstairs doing that and talking to the officer while they're outside the house. Mm -hmm. So the information is traveling through all these different channels and locking in, and and forensically. And, I, and I'll end with this message. You know, my time is spent with. I want to prevent. I don't want it to happen here. I want. I don't want to deal with it. But when it does, we owe the community the answer, we owe them safety, we owe them an explanation, we owe them the story, and then we owe them even better prevention to look at that and see how we can avoid doing that in the future.
0: Could you just explain flock? Sometimes it's been controversial, but I know a lot of officers and police departments use it regularly.
2: Sure. Uh, explain how Flock works. It captures uh, snapshots in time. It captures cars and vehicles with certain triggers within the system that we set. Those and so if you're looking for a certain, if you have a robbery in a certain area, you can lock in. You can search that area for that particular vehicle. It pulls that plate, and you have a suspect. Case in point, um, we just arrested uh, a robbery suspect within two hours of the robbery because of that technology. Um, and the difference in that technology and the problems with the other technology, it has a 30-day purge. It's gone. It's out of the system. It's about crime happening now. It's not about, hey, let's look back and see if someone was in a neighborhood you know, six, seven years ago. Retention and searchability was a lot of the problems with LPR prior to the Flock product, which helps you to do that snapshot at that time of the crime. So if you have a burglar in a neighborhood, you can get that information if you're working it with a good detective at that time,
0: so uh, I know when Flock was rolled out in some communities, it, it was a bit controversial because it uh, it has the potential to roll up information about people who are not necessarily involved in crime. You feel comfortable
1: with the way Flock is being used here? One hundred percent. I know okay. the controversy you're referring to, at least localized. There's always the national conversation about people's privacy, and we have strict policies about who can see that data. That's a law enforcement tool that has to have a certain degree of, you know, rational nexus as to why we're accessing the, the information. You know, I think it was the library, the building we're sitting in here, you know, someone recommended putting a Flock camera on the library. And people started immediately drawing conclusions that we we're going to start to track who's going to the library and who's not going to the library. <laughs> that couldn't be further from the case. I mean, th- that camera is f- to identify people who are driving vehicles that are tied to— crime, the commission of a crime, or a warrant, or what have you, exclusively. Uh, I don't have access to that information. No one's selling your information to other entities. Um, it is strictly a law enforcement tool, so I do feel very confident in the use of it. Mayor, let me stay with you for a moment
0: because, I don't know, you, I'm sure you hear this. I hear it all the time. I always receive complaints with people living in Fishers about the way people in Fishers drive their automobiles. <laughs> um, how can I put this? Uh, speeding through yellow lights, speeding in general, it's just, uh, you know, there's only so much the police department can do. It really has to be, a, you know, people have to, have to have to obey the law and look out for other uh, drivers. So, uh, well, I hear both. I So I hear both sides of that. So explain yeah. what uh, how you feel about that.
1: Well, I mean, I've been to plenty uh events, community events, where someone tells me all our cops do is pull people over. And then I go to other events where they say, I've never seen a cop in my neighborhood, and they're speeding all the time. What I would say about traffic in general and Fishers is that this actually has very little to do with law enforcement. Um, they, they can help put kind of a Band-Aid on the wound, so to speak, but they're not a permanent fix to the, the challenge. You know, Fishers in the 2000s, 2010, 2015 timeframe had more than enough traffic to keep things slow. I mean, most of the traffic was fairly congested. A lot of road improvements, and then you take COVID, and the the peak traffic that we used to have has decreased significantly where you have a lot of people staying home. And so what has happened are roads like 116th Street, Oleo Road, 126th Street, Allisonville Road. They were built for a certain type of volume, and when, when that much volume's on there, You just physically can't go that fast, nor do you feel safe to drive that fast. With the reduction in volume, people are going to drive as fast as they feel safe to drive, regardless of how many signs we put up or however many cops he puts out on the road. So Ed's made it a priority. Chiefs made it a priority to have our guys out being proactive to to, to try to bring down the volume a little bit or to bring down the speed but ultimately we need to break up some of those big roads put some more medians in them slow them down create this environment where you don't feel like you can drive 75 miles an hour and trust me there are people driving 70 miles an hour on Olio Road and 116th Street that's
0: and I you know they pass me by every now and then but uh, but chief I want to go back to something that you told me uh, several years ago when you were in charge of the patrol division before you were chief and I remember you telling me what you wanted your officers to do out there in the field was to have their cars out and their lights on. In other words, you see somebody breaking the law, you pull them over, make sure the lights are on, people see it. And I have seen that. Your officers uh, do that work. But I suppose, there's, as the mayor said, there's no way you're going to please everyone. Some people think you're being too aggressive. Some people th- don't know why you're not as aggressive as you should be. So talk about your approach to this when people complain to you about the fact that people aren't obeying the traffic laws in Fishers.
2: Well, I mean it's a it's a conversation where I ask, you know, when, where, how, and why and if we go look at it and it makes sense we'll put officers there and we'll try to slow it down. Look, we don't want our community getting hurt. You know, we had an effort uh last year to uh and into this year too is just slow our community down. We felt it was too fast. Um, and put in as much as we could help with what the mayor is speaking of there. And you know, north of 18,000 traffic stops were made. We don't have quotas, we don't have contact rates, we don't have ticket counts or nothing like that in our, in our uh, police department. But, it, but that is the most cars we've ever stopped since I've been here. My theory on this is, is that I want the lights on and I want the officers out because it also deters crime. It sends a message that we're out and about and our cars are moving. Police cars that are parked in places generally aren't sending the message that they're ready to fight crime. And they do it and they're showing it and the numbers show it and the ticket count shows it. And then when the community hits me and says, you know, we need you over here on Allisonville Road or we need you over here, I go take a look at it. And if it makes sense, we rotate officers in there for a long period of time and try to slow people down and just try to work with people because I understand. Both sides of the argument, and I've heard that my whole, you know, we don't see you, we do see you. You, that's all you do, and you know, I get, I've heard all of it. So somewhere in there's the middle truth of right where we need to be. I figure as a chief, uh, but the officers do a good job of getting out.
1: One of the most common misperceptions about police officers, and I've ridden out with a ton of them, is that people believe that they got into policing to pull you over for going eight miles over the speed limit. That is not why the vast majority of men and women wear the uniform is not uh, to when, – when the chief and his leadership gets their, them to pull over 18,000 people, that's a real lift on leadership to get folks to do that because they want to go catch criminals, you know, true criminals doing violent crimes or perpetrating theft or what have you. The majority of them are not thinking, today I'm going to go pull over 45 cars and give you a ticket for making an illegal U-turn. That's that's not the men and women that I've come in contact with most of the time in the police department. They're well, rare.
0: There were the, there were the days when there were there were police departments that had quotas. That's, there still are, yeah, there and still there probably are. still are There's some that us. do that. But There's you're you're saying you don't do that. No, mayor. Uh, I've seen a couple of different uh, numbers on this. The 2020 census put Fisher's population at just under a hundred thousand. I've heard a hundred and five thousand being mm-hmm. the current population. Is that I think
1: think right around 104,000 is what we're
0: projecting at the moment. The reason I mention that is because, you know, when I moved to Fishers in 1991, the 1990 census had the town of Fishers at just over 7,500. In 2000, it was under 38,000. 2010, it was just over 76,000. So I guess the reason I, I bring that up is that when you're talking about policing a community, I mean, the, the way our community has grown at such a, a rapid rate, that certainly does change the way you approach staffing and,
1: and putting together and supporting your police department. Uh, it does. Um, the law of number says, I don't care who you are, if you put 100,000 people together, there's a percentage of those people that are going to want to do bad things or have done bad things. If you were to ask me, you know, what what has changed today, policing versus, say, when I first started 15 years ago, I would say a couple of things. The the number of people that our police department comes in contact with or identifies that have serious criminal backgrounds has increased uh, a marked amount. And then the amount of illegal firearms that they come in contact with is also significantly different. Um, and then I would say one other one. A chief could weigh in on this that I find interesting. And in part of I, part of this, I can't put my finger on. I can't tell if we've just gotten better at identifying these people, or there are more of them now living here. But there there is a. And we won't go into details, but there are there are a decent number of people that call Fishers home for the very same reasons you and I would. For like, they like the community. Schools are good, but they're bad people. They're bad people doing bad things and being mm-hmm. part of criminal enterprises, and they call Fishers home. And I can't tell you how many times Ed and his team have been involved with federal agencies or otherwise where they're extricating, they're taking people out of our community who probably haven't, to my knowledge, they haven't committed violent crimes in Fishers, but they call Fishers home. And that's, that, that was never, I don't remember that being around 15 years ago. I think a lot of
2: what you speak of, too, is I think they were around. I think intelligence-wise, technology-wise, we know about them through various reasons now than we did then. And I think the officers, too, along with technology, and you can have all the technology in the world, but if you don't have a savvy officer to operate it and get it done— and ask the right questions to get that information, to get into the technology or the intelligence gathering piece of it, you don't know who these people are or where they're at. And we spend a lot of time trying to figure out where our future threats are so we can guard ourselves from it. But I would agree. Um, and scaling up is um, a team effort between uh, you know all factions of the city and making sure that you provide services everywhere. The Fishers Police Department is a part of that. Um, but we are growing at a rate that I feel that we need to. I think we're growing technology at a rate that I think is going to help supplement uh, things that could help in that growth, and I feel confident with where we stand in our numbers now. And what
1: and, I, Sorry, Larry. What I sure. just want to add on to that, what I love about the Chief's approach for this preventative model is take these people who are now calling Fishers home that do bad things elsewhere. Because of the systems he's put in place with our intelligence unit and our crime reduction unit and our relationships into the FBI and DEA and... And, um, and frankly, IMPD, C- CJ, and all that. Yeah. We're identifying these people. Because, look, if you're a bad person involved in crime, it's going to come back to your doorstep at some point. People are going to show up and shoot up your house. They're going to do a variety. Like, it's going to come home to roost. So his approach of being proactive, saying, look, I know Jim Smith in that neighborhood is involved in narcotics because I have relationships with FBI and DEA and crime reduction units been on that house and so we know what's going on. If we if we get there first and get them out of here, I personally believe we've prevented violent crime from happening in our city. It's it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And so I think that that being that is proactive in its own right. I think the last uh, you know, 4 years, roughly 4,
2: maybe just under 409 illegal firearms taken off the city streets by these officers those also have potential of crime in and around our city. And uh, also, too, with that, and and he allows it and he's on board with it, which I appreciate, is I have a theory of play a greater offense is the best defense. So we're out building relationships. We're out trying to figure out what we have. We're out trying to figure out who's moving here. We're out trying to figure out what's going on around us so we can keep here safe. And that plays into it, too. There's a lot of mindset of I'm going to police this right here because this is what I'm responsible for we don't play that. We want to be out regionally leading, we want to be out regionally working. We want to understand where law enforcement's headed. Sometimes that comes from bigger agencies that we have to learn as we go. And then we partner with, you know, Indianapolis and we partner with agencies like Carmel and around us. And then that helps us get the job done when the crimes happen too. So are you fully staffed right now? Yeah, with the exception of uh, Tom Wager, who's abandoned the ship. Um, (laughs) Retired. That's only one position at the end of the year that came onto the fold. And then the mayor's allotted three new uh, officers into next year. And I already have probably seven candidates identified for those four positions that we're about to fill. Because I know a lot of departments have had trouble uh, recruiting. You've not had that problem. Recruitment's down. So uh, here's here's the difference. I I don't know the totality of that answer. And the reason is because we've changed how we hire. We used to have one hiring process a year, 350 applicants would roll through the door, and you'd siphon through that, and it would take all year, and you'd get your people on. We are hiring all the time and identifying talent all the time, and we'll take our time to identify talent at any time. I think that is one portion of it. I think that uh, the work that the leaders within the department are doing, and I'm not saying me. I'm just saying from our sergeants to our lieutenants to our staff— Uh, continuing the mindset of taking care of our officers. Generationally right now, we're at what? Six, seven generations of of people in the building. Those generations have different wants and needs. You know, you're in the work-life balance and you go all the way down. I think you have to understand wellness. I think you gotta take care of your people so they wanna come and they wanna stay. And we keep them generally. Um, uh, Mostly all of them stay once they get in here and they stay long-term. So I feel we'll be full again next year after I feel these new positions were given. Retirements I've, I've had to battle through some retirements and attrition because we had a lot of officers. We weren't we were the young agency for years and years and years until we became not the young agency anymore. And so we've lost some uh, 28 to 36 year people that moved on to other careers. And we set up part of my interview process was is we need to make sure people get out healthy. And so we set up areas to identify private industry that would be interested. And in. we help with that. He helps with that. He says, hey, we have a something coming into town. Is one of your command staff looking? Is someone on the department looking? And would someone be a good opportunity for this? And I hate to lose talent, but then again, I want people to retire healthy. I want officers to leave the job like they found it by helping them through it and then getting them to the end of it.
0: You know, Mayor, every single budget process, and I've covered about, what, 12 of, a them, lot of them, I think. <laughs> Uh, I can't remember a year where you didn't go through a budget process and recommend to the city council additional staffing for public safety. I don't probably remember if there was one. If there was <laughs> one, I don't even remember that. I
1: know, it's very it, factual, eh? yeah, 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 It's been very few. I mean, look, we're growing, you know, and we're growing by the size of a small town typically on an annual basis. Mm-hmm. You know, if you add three to 4,000 people a year, in most places, that's, that's a decent-sized small town. Now, I will say this, and – all credit to the police and fire department that we have here, but there's another key team member here that we don't give enough credit to, and that's our residents. I mean, we have extraordinary residents who genuinely care about their community, and they want their community to be safe, and they're proactive. And that has been incredibly helpful because if, I'll tell you, if we were bringing on four or 5,000 residents who didn't care about their community, who had significant crim- criminal baggage or bringing with them, if we had that, the manpower needs would be significantly different than what they are today. So I'm always grateful to the fact that we have just an extraordinary population that call Fishers home. Uh, that, that is a huge benefit for our law enforcement agency to, to interact with.
2: I'll add no. to you, though, you know, there's a great amount of trust the mayor has in me to do this job. And so I don't go asking for 15 officers a year. If I need it, I ask for it. And there's been some reallocation of things. There's been some teamwork of are we using these people in the best position possible for the city and would the residents think highly of this this direction we're headed. And over my, it's about five and a half years now, going on five and a half years I've been in, in this thing now, we've been smart about where we're using our people and where we place them. And I don't needlessly go over unless I'm actually at a place where, uh, and we're rolling up now at the end of the year, stats will tell me you know where we got ahead and then i present that package and we decide as a team we're out of time uh, mayor anything
0: you would like to add that i didn't think to ask
1: no i think uh just in general i think police and fire um i know they're already well thought of in our community but i'll give you a, a case in point of just a great story a, a battalion chief from the fire department when the power was out over the weekend he sent a note to chief arus and i that elderly couple of calls um Calls and says that their oxygen tanks are in the garage, mm. and that they can't get them, and that they're getting uh, and it's dark and their power's out and all this. They go over there, and the um, the truck uh, helps them get their oxygen tanks out of the garage. And then they realize that the elderly couple has uh, flashlights that don't work because there's the batteries don't work on the flashlights or whatever. So they lend them their flashlight, and then the engine drives over to the hardware store or to the store buys batteries. On their own accord, brings them back and sets up the the elderly couple with the batteries and and make sure that they're all right. I just and then you'll see like a Fisher's police officer changing somebody's tire on the side of the road. I mean, it is amazing to me that these folks are willing to do you know really brave things, but at the same time they're just kind, compassionate people that genuinely want to help individuals in their time of need, no matter how big or small that might be. So I'm I'm glad to be a part of that, a small part of that. And, um, you know, I think we've got some great leadership in both police and fire department. I think you're going to see a lot of innovation in the next 12 to 24 months coming out of both agencies.
0: So, Chief Kephardt, anything you'd like to add?
2: Pleasure to be here we <laughs> can't wait to
0: get back to work. That's right. He can't wait to get it. Just so you know, he was, his police radio is at ready just in case he's called out. So we're glad you were able to stay for the duration of the podcast. <laughs> the chief. questions didn't get hard, so I didn't <laughs> yeah. Police Chief Ed Gephardt, you just heard him. Mayor Scott Fadness, uh, thank you so much for your time today.